Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. You know, it's always good when we've got a math teacher on to put us in our place. Hayley Duro has been recognised at state and national levels as a passionate, forward-thinking math teacher and educational leader. Her work as head of student voice at Mount Waverley Secondary College is also of keen interest to game changers everywhere, providing a really tangible experience of the way in which we can make a difference and equip, empower and enable our students to thrive with today's learning for tomorrow's world. She's won awards, she does special gigs, she travels, she teaches people how to teach math. She's a remarkable human being. We're excited. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 12 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are proud to be partnered with the education team of the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House in Canberra, Australia's capital city. Looking for civics and citizenship experiences and resources to empower voice and agency in your Australian classroom? The MOAD Learning Team have got you covered with on-site and online experiences for teachers and young people of all ages. Visit MOAD Learning at M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov.au forward slash learning. That's M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov.au forward slash learning. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And Phil, um, I know that you've been travelling for some time prior to our conversation with Hayley this morning, and it is clear by looking out my window that you have brought Sydney's horrific rain with you and that now Dan Andrews has mandated snorkels for everyone. Are you done? I, look, I am, but I just want to make it really clear to all our listeners, particularly our international listeners, that Sydney has more annual rainfall than Melbourne, so please stop the jokes about Melbourne's rain. And, 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 I'd, just like, and, <laughs> I, and I'd just like to point out that I don't feel the need to make jokes about Adriano's hometown. It's, it's a town that you live in. Anyway, now, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our wonderful guest. I'm so excited. In Series 12, where we are exploring educating for voice, agency and advocacy, that we are blessed and privileged to have Hayley on with us. Hayley, I'm going to ask you the very first question. It's the question that we ask, of course, all of our guests, and that is, tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Wow, that's a big question. Uh, I'll try and sum that up for you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm incredibly excited to be uh, part of Series 12 with your amazing other guests. So, yeah, it's a real privilege for me to um, be part of this series. Uh, about me, I am a maths teacher, absolutely love teaching maths. That's, you know, my favourite place to be is in a classroom. And I was really fortunate as a pre-service teacher to pick up a an ongoing position at uh, Mount Waverley Secondary College, which is where I've spent the last 15 years of my teaching career and uh, grown from, you know, baby teacher, pre-service teacher uh, and taken on different roles at the school. 
Uh, one of those roles was in student management, which a lot of you know emerging leaders go into that area. And I guess in my time in student management, I really saw an opportunity to engage students in opportunities for them to be empowered. And often in those roles, you're spending a huge portion of your time with a very small portion of the the student cohort. And it was really important to me to find ways to engage all students. At the time, we were losing some students to select entry schools, which is um, pretty, you know, normal for state schools to to lose um, some of their really aspirant students. And I thought it was really important to uh, offer those students opportunities so that it was a a tough choice for them uh, as to whether they would leave Mount Waverley or go to a select entry school. And one of the ways I did that was through working with a team of Year 10 students. In uh, Student leadership at Year 10 didn't actually exist at that point. We had school captains in Blazers and and on our junior campus we had some leadership, but in that middle years there was uh, nothing existing at the time. And I started working with a group of Year 10 students. So that's where it really all sort of started. And I guess it was my approach with those students. And um, one of the key things that I did was that leadership was open to any student. You didn't need to be, you know, the most popular, A-plus, sporty, um, cool student. Of course, some of them were, but uh, you could be any student. Any student could take part in student leadership and then that sort of morphed over the next um it's about a seven-year journey but into student voice and empowerment rather than student leadership Mm -hmm. and all of that work sort of aligned um you know the timing was great with the direction of the department so I was at a government school uh and yeah so that's sort of the start of the journey I guess you know, Hayley, our audience won't know this, but you and I had met previously where we were both invited to present uh, at a particular workshop many, many years ago around student wellbeing and, and student leadership. What was interesting for me around that encounter, because it's going to link to exactly what you've just shared, is that um, I turned up with a colleague and two former uh, old collegians from, from the school that I, that I was the deputy head at because we wanted to showcase uh, an example of here's the impact, the positive impact that we can make when we invest in voice agency and advocacy of young people. And you turned up also with some students uh, from memory, uh, current students who spoke so eloquently about the opportunities that not only the, the school had given, but more specifically what you had given them. And at the heart of what they were sharing was this notion that they had an educator who didn't just do this because they felt it was right. You did this because you were inherently invested in their growth and you believed in their capacity. In your educational career, when did you discover the value and the importance of that relationship and the strength of that relationship between the student and the teacher and the value of us being a champion in the corner of often the voiceless? Another very big question. I'll do my best with this one. I I think this is sort of, there's multiple parts to this. One part does come back to my time in student management. And in those roles, you're often dealing with students, you know, for various reasons, things are happening at home, things have happened in classrooms, things have happened in the yard. And 
you really see the impact that a teacher has on a student and you're removed from it. So you're, you know, not in that classroom, but you're seeing the impact positive and sometimes not so much. And when you're in those roles, you're often teaching as well. So middle leadership roles. And I realized when I would go into my classrooms, all of a sudden I had this sort of really uh, vivid realization that I was the person who was going to change the mood of the 25 people in front of me. They could turn up into my classroom having had a terrible morning, maybe not spoken to an adult yet, who knows what's going on. But when they leave my classroom, that is going to be a product of my interactions, not just with them, Mm -hmm. but with the other students in the class. Because students really pick up on interactions that you have with other students in the class. So even if it's, you know, one student who's really doing your head in, any interaction with that student that's negative is seen by the other students. And Mm. I think it was through working in student management I realised that, that we have such a huge influence on on the students in our our care. Mm -hmm. But a second part of that was the potential. So not that I underestimated students, but I guess I hadn't realised what they can do with just a little bit of, rope and a little bit of time and and support Mm -hmm. and I think that's key to the work I've done in this space is often it is much easier as the teacher or the person leading this work to just do it just you know that they're confused the students are taking a while or they don't know what the next step is so it's easy as a teacher to step in and say okay well you haven't considered xyz you need to go see that person and fix it but if you just take a step backwards not completely hands-off because they're young people and they need guidance and support. Yeah. But if you give them the time and the space and let them know that you actually believe that they can can do something, it is incredible what they can do. And, I mean, I have so many examples at the time. So this is going back to about 2014, 15, and um, it was a real focus at our school to uh, improve student connectedness and belonging and and sort of, for lack of a better word, the vibe, I guess, at the school. And, you know, putting that to this group of students who ranged from Tamil refugee who just arrived at the country, you know, very, very diverse group of students um, and saying, you know, what do you think are some things that could increase morale at this school and then letting them try something little mm-hmm. uh, a similar silly example is we went and got a whole lot of bubbles and you know those tubes from Kmart mm-hmm. and just played music and got the chalk out and stuff at lunchtime like this is early early days but something little like that that really sort of gave them the momentum to think okay well people want to feel like they actually have fun at school and belong I mean eventually that morphed into classroom practice and, the, and those sorts of things but um, I guess giving students opportunities and and actually believing in them and um, stepping in at the right point, which is sometimes hard to gauge, but if you know your students well and the young people you're working with, stepping in to support them when they really need it, but being the person that can step back and, and let them have a voice and be agentic. There, there is uh, so much that you're sharing with our audience today about your lived experience and so much about your why. And there are two questions I'm going to now follow this up with uh, before I hand it over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Dr. Phil Cummins, who I know is uh, wanting to jump in here. 
listening to this conversation because what I'm hearing is two key fundamental things. I'm hearing the profoundness of our influence and secondly, the transformation of permission. So let's start with the influence part. So much of your extraordinary work in student voice and of course around forward-thinking mathematics in the classroom has influenced how we how we do this across public education, particularly here in, in, in Victoria, and, and how we do learning in schools, but how we do relationships in schools. You've spoken about your influence and our influence as educators on young people and, and why we need to really lean into that and be really deeply conscious of, of, of why that's so significant and the privilege that it brings us. I'm interested to know, and I'm sure our listeners are, Who's influenced you in your teaching journey and why? That is an excellent question. I think I've been very, very fortunate that people have popped into my life at in, in a professional sense at the right time. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, it's fate and <laughs> not getting too um, airy-fairy here. But I guess I've had people do sometimes quite small things that have had a really profound impact in the direction of my career. So I appreciate those small, sometimes bigger, but often small gestures that sort of have steered me into the right path. So I have a few examples. Um, A few years ago, I completed my master's at Melbourne University. I did a master's of instructional leadership and I was sort of, which direction do I go in now? Like, am I applying for senior leadership roles? I still love being in the classroom, a little bit lost and had a meeting with my uh, master, one of my master's um, lecturers who just casually said, have you, have you thought about doing a doctorate? And it hadn't at all crossed my mind. And, and I was like, no, don't throw another option in there I'm already confused and she sort of just said oh look why don't you have a look at this and you know next minute I'm applying to do a doctorate which is what I'm uh, now enrolled in but even going back to when I started the work with students in Teach the Teacher which is a Vic SRC program the Victorian Student Representative Council our students at Mount Waverley um, did that program and that's a quite a large part of the work I did at Mount Waverley was around student-led research, student-led professional learning, and uh, through the Teach the Teacher program, the students co-designed a student feedback survey, which was used across the whole whole school and, and still is. And that sort of approach is actually the focus of my doctoral research. But it was in a conversation actually at an ACL conference in 2015 casual conversation over a drink at the end of the day with um, Barb Waterston, who's now the uh, CEO of ASIL. Uh, and she, and I was telling her what these students were doing and they'd looked at John Hattie's um, research on feedback and they were using that approach to lead professional learning. And she casually said, uh, have you told John Hattie about this? And I was like, yeah, I've just picked up the phone and called John Hattie. But it was through that conversation that she said, why don't you email him? And then the students actually emailed him, not me, because it was it was their work. And it's those sort of little things and people encouraging me at, at different points that has really helped me get better, learn, progress. So I think I because of that, I appreciate the power of little interactions um, that can can have a lasting impact on someone and students I've taught you know come back or email 
years later and say such and such that you said, and te- all teachers get this, this isn't special about me. Uh, any teacher listening would have that, um, have had that experience. But I guess that's that's what teaching is. You, you know you're having an impact potentially with every interaction that you have with students. Uh, I, I love, Phil, how Hayley continues to, when the question's about her, bring it back to her students conveniently. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but it's deeply appreciated. And, and, th- and this is what we have grown to admire about you as an educator and a leader and someone who, has con- who continues to dedicate so much of your being, empowering not only the young people in your care, but, of course, the adults that support them as well. Hayley, as I'm sitting here and thinking about that exchange between you and Barb, and I'm sure many of the other mentors that you've had in your life, I'm thinking about that special type of learning relationship that we call character apprenticeship, in which we take on, as an expert, we take on a novice and and through our coaching and our our modelling and our scaffolding, we help them to explore and to reflect and to articulate who they are being and becoming. Um, And as they gain in the adaptive expertise and self-efficacy required for them to thrive, as the, as the expert, you then stand out of the way and allow them to become an expert in their own right. And as it's, if there was, ever there was a good example of that, that's sort of thing that you and, you and Barb have been doing with each other. It's, 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 it's a really lovely piece. Schools are very busy places. You know, just ask people in schools because if you ask them how are you, they'll almost certainly tell you they're busy to start with. Mm. Part of the challenge of relationships of character apprenticeship is that they take time. You know, this is no flash fried lamb cutlets. This is a slow cooked, deep lamb navarin. You know what I mean? It's it's it it, it takes time. It takes patience. Um, it takes days, weeks, months, years um, to build. Uh, the character, competency and wellness of human beings. How can we help people in schools find the time to make transformational relationships happen beyond the busy transactions of a school day? That is such a great question and one that comes up a fair bit because when you look back at, let's say, seven years' worth of work, it's very easy just to see the huge machine that it is and and the success and the the change without seeing all of the little bumps and sometimes not little bumps, sometimes big bumps along the way. So whenever I'm sharing my approach or, or what we've done at Mount Waverley with people who are interested, which is, you know, pe- people would ask to come and visit, uh, not just from schools locally, but we had delegations of uh, leaders and and sometimes students from Denmark, from uh, the Netherlands, from New Zealand, from Malaysia come and visit, but a lot of Victorian schools. And they'd see what we were doing and then, you know, sometimes try and go back into their school and do something similar or sometimes possibly feel like overwhelmed. I can't do that in my context. I don't have a seat at the leadership table. For example, I was a um, I was fortunate my principal really valued all of this work and I had a leadership role. So as the person leading that work, I was sitting at the leadership table and in some schools the person sort of trying to lead this work sometimes isn't, although I I feel like that's sort of changing a lot now. I I think it's really important to recognise that context is so important 
You cannot take what one school has done and do it in another school. I could not take myself to another school and try and repeat what I did at Mount Waverley. Uh, Context is so, so important. Also, in any uh, school ecosystem, there will be people who are more and less resistant to, to change or the work that you're trying to lead. And I think it's so important to spend the time getting people on board. Not everyone, because you won't probably ever achieve that. But I think one of the early lessons I learned was that you can't just steam, you know, full steam ahead. You can't just push ahead and ignore the people who don't believe in the work or who don't want to come along on the ride. You actually need to stop and, you know, maybe maybe start leading something, but then stop and go back to those people and try and bring them on board throughout the, the process. So there's context. There's also the culture creating the culture um your question phil was around you know that that pressure of time and i think my, my biggest piece of advice there would be that this work is not separate to the other work that happens in schools so you can actually make changes to what you're already doing that will enhance student voice student agency and actually in the long term help you because it leads to more engaged learners and students feeling better about themselves and about being in your classroom or about being in your school. So it's not, oh, I can't teach the curriculum because I have to focus on student voice and agency. It's how can I incorporate student voice and agency into the work that I'm already doing? And sometimes it's very simple things that people just don't uh, necessarily think about. So <clears throat> decisions in the school, you might not think to stop and ask the students about something because in your mind, you know that that thing has to happen. So then often the response is, well, I'm not going to do tokenistic student voice, which is I'm very anti-tokenistic student voice. So I wouldn't encourage that at all. You know, I wouldn't suggest anyone asks students something do you want option A or B if you know that you're going to go ahead with option B? But you can involve students in the process. If, if you know you have to go along with option B, why not just speak to some students, not just the school captains, and actually ask them and say, look, this is the situation. Um, you know, we have to change our timetable. Our timetable is going to a seven-period day. Uh, what do you think about that? What have we missed? What haven't we considered? The response might be, I walk my little brother to school. How's that going to work? You know, some sort of dialogue. I mean, this is potentially just a silly example, but anything like that where you can actually speak to students and and it's not just speaking to students, involving them in some of the solutions as well, which is a big part of the work that I um, led at Mount Waverley after our Teach the Teacher success I'll say success because it was you know it was recognized the students won awards for their work etc but at that time I knew that if Phil had walked through my school and just tapped a, a random student and said do you have a voice in this school that if the student wasn't directly involved with teach the teacher there was a chance that they would say I don't know what you're talking about uh, which did not sit very comfortably with me so I went back to the students and I shared that I said this is how I'm feeling how do you feel about this? The students actually felt the same and they were glad that it, I'd raised it because they sort of felt, you know, not like frauds, but they felt like they they knew some peers at the school weren't involved in this work and it, it was a, 
not sitting well with them. So we created a, a program called Mount Matters, which was student-led focus groups for students. And this, the Mount Matters students who came to these focus groups could be any student. And we intentionally said, we want a diverse representative of this, this cohort or this school. We want your naughty kid, your sporty kid, your um, student who doesn't speak very often, the student who doesn't come to school very often. This, like we want the full range. That took a little bit of work with the teachers, some some teachers, because they were saying, you know, you're recognising ex-student Hayley and, and she's, you know, not the best student in my class, so why is she getting this opportunity or whatever? So it took a little bit of work to say, well, actually that's just the point is we need to tap into all students and, and Hayley, you know, represents um, some students in this in this school, in our community. And it was through this dialogue with the students interviewing other students, or not interviewing, but running focus groups and hearing them and involving these students in the actual solutions. So if the problem was year 11 students are really stressed about lo having lots of sacks, okay, what can we do within the constraints of our school? Because we have to have sacks. We're doing the, you've chosen VCE. Can I, can, I, yeah, can, I, can, I, can I just point out for all those um, people here who aren't Victorians like the Prado, uh, a sack is, an, is a major assessment task. It's major it's assessment. not a, it's it's not woven hessian into which you put the Carlton football team after they lose yet again <laughs> another season. <laughs> yes, it, it's a school oh, assessed task. Yes, it's a school assessed. Um, and, and, and of course, for those in the arts and, and design, of course, it's a school assessed task. A cat, yeah, sash. Sorry, exactly right. So assessments, and yeah. and again, I'm using you know I have too many examples to fit into one podcast, but uh, that is a, an example that came up. And it was through the students having these conversations with the other, you know, with the students in these focus groups. Okay, what do you think we could do as a school to help students who are really stressed about their, their assessment tasks? And then they worked, uh, they actually realised that, you know, the dates weren't clear for all of the different subjects. Some Some teachers were communicating dates online, some were emailing students, some were um, had a handout that they'd given the students at the start of the year that they thought the students should still have and some had lost it. So through that, they they decided that a, a school-wide assessment calendar would be something that would really help them. And then, of course, they couldn't just make that themselves. They had to work with, with teachers and leaders, the head of curriculum, the head of senior school, to, to develop that. But they could see that. Like once it was created they could see we now have a an assessment calendar at our school because we brought that issue up and then we worked with teachers and together to come to a solution um, about and, that. And, yeah, and Hayley, like it, it's, it's, I want to unpack some of the things that you, you, you brought out there because in and of itself, um, a school-wide assessment calendar is nothing revolutionary and yet in the context, because it's created by the students, there's a very powerful meaning that sits in and around that, you, you said earlier um, that you, you emphasise context, and you can't just take something and apply it from school to school to school in some sort of transactional way. Yet we know, of course, whenever jockeys go to conferences, they say, "Just give me something I can use in my classroom tomorrow." Without and and which is something I really hate because it's it's like no stop, think, be deliberate, be intentionally purposeful about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, um, one size fits all is not possible in education, but we can have frameworks. And you you identified some of the the principles 
I think, that sit behind um, empowering leadership, leadership that equips and empowers and enables, which our research tells us is the secret source of any great school. Within that, you're very keen on this notion of leadership for all. And that's something that's very different from schools when DePrado and I started teaching back in the Ice Age at some point. You know, schools schools reflected society with a with a view that there were a group of leaders and they did the leading and then there was a much bigger group of followers who needed to do what they're told. Society doesn't work that way and schools should not work that way. For any younger teachers or older teachers who are out there right now, who've got that same passion, that same um, passion for democratic principles that are contemporary and that and that give credence to voice and the importance of the voice of every student. How can they go about helping their community to think about leadership for all rather than leadership for just some? I think it depends what kind of leadership we're talking about. So if you see leadership as service to others and you actually model that and you have structures in your school where students can't just be voted in to be year level captain and then do nothing or let me rephrase that if you have structures where a student can just be voted in and then not do much beyond hosting an assembly or representing the school at the Anzac Day ceremony then that is a different type of leadership to what I'm talking about and I think we need to remember I'm working in a secondary context. I understand there'll be listeners who are in uh, primary, but the same the same absolutely goes for primary and secondary. We're working with young people who are learning things. So if your expectation is that the students in student leadership need to be excellent leaders, I think there's a problem with that. I think that it's our role to create opportunities for students to get involved with leadership maybe they won't like it and that's okay as well because that means that then they're not going to waste anyone's time applying for you know leadership positions um in the future if they're not if they don't want to do that or they might think i'm not ready for this yet i need to go and focus on myself a little bit first and then come back so i i think it it absolutely i understand what you're saying challenges some people's notion of what student leadership is and what it should be. But I I would say if you're having those thoughts where you're like, oh, that's not going to work because, you know, I think student leaders should be X, Y, Z, maybe just sit with that for a little moment and and, and unpack that. So uh, it is my belief that any student should be, have an opportunity to get involved in student leadership. Obviously, you can't have 72 out of 120 of your students probably in, in leadership, formal leadership roles. And so you need to create other opportunities for students to, to develop leadership skills. And that might mean they don't wear a badge, uh, but it means that they have a chance to try try leadership and get better at it. Terrific. Okay. Hayley, I want to switch the attention over the teaching of mathematics now. Um, so if we, if we go from um, the general outside the classroom to coming into the classroom, PISA, a number of years ago, did the work to tell us that math teachers were the most important teachers in the school and that mathematics, therefore, is the foundational subject in the school. And the reason is 
not because there's any intrinsic value to maths that is greater than other subjects, but because math teachers have the, the greatest impact, positive or negative, on how well kids do at school. And that's not just in mathematics, that's in all their other subjects. So if you have a great math teacher, you have a reason to come to school every day. And for years after you've had a great math teacher, your results in other subjects show that. Great math teachers um, promote engagement in learning better than anybody else. The, the, you talked, Hattie, earlier, the, the effect size is greater than anybody else. And, of but course, building confidence. Better. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but if you flip it around the other way, if you have a math teacher who is the opposite of that, then you have a reason to hate school every day and the results just drop in and around that. You referred earlier to that interesting challenge that we've got of integrating what it is that we do, the different purposes that we have in trying to grow children. That it's not just about a curriculum box and a pedagogy box and an assessment box and a relationship box and a, and a, and a, a care box but it is the interweaving of all of these things, the integration of all these things. And in many ways, that's what I think Valerie Hannon refers to when um, she says in, in, in the forward to our book, Game Changers Leading Today's Learning for Tomorrow's World, she refers to the notion of the sheer poetry of our calling. I think we don't have this poetry to ourselves. I think this is part of what we need to pass on. How do math teachers best pass on the sheer poetry of mathematics and help students to connect with the sheer poetry of their lives. There are there are so many amazing maths teachers in the country and in Victoria, and I'm fortunate enough to know many of them. There's just not enough uh, of us. So the Australian Maths and Sciences Institute released a report, I, I think it was 20. 18, I could be wrong with the date there, but the Australian Maths and Sciences Institute re released a report about the uh, out-of-field maths teacher crisis. And, and in that report, they had some interesting statistics around the number of students in the state, uh, sorry, it was Australian-wide, the number of students in the country who will have been taught by an out-of-field maths teacher at some point in their schooling, seven, seven to 10 schooling. I think they were looking at and it's actually frightening and it's frightening because you can have you know three out of four years an amazing teacher and um, possibly one year is you know not such a great experience and as you said Phil that has a lasting impact on a student uh, for years and years beyond that one year experience. I think focusing on the positives if a Student has a teacher who absolutely loves maths but can also teach it, so absolutely loves teaching maths. It just opens so many doors for that student beyond that experience so that they essentially learn, you know, the language of mathematics and then possibly they don't want to go and be a mathematician when they're grown up. Maybe they do. But it opens so many opportunities for them in terms of what they want to uh yeah, business they want to start, a course they want to study, you know, possibly a university. And mathematics has the potential to open so many more doors. You mentioned confidence, and that is absolutely correct. You, you can see a student, like, come out of themselves almost when they realise 
I can actually do this and I understand maths. And I think that's our role as maths teachers is to, as much as it is about, you know, teaching them complex mathematics and, and doing, you know, that, the core purpose of our work is about helping students to see that they actually can understand maths. They can be successful in maths. I fundamentally believe literally every single student can be successful in maths. They may need something explained a few times in maybe 10 different ways, but every student that I have ever taught, I have believed that they can be successful in, in the study of mathematics. So I think if you go into a classroom with that, it's not a matter of, um, you know, some of some of my kids are going to be maths kids and some aren't. That's just not a not a thing. I think there's a a role beyond maths teachers. Uh, so a, a broader role in terms of all teachers, but also just anyone in a school, anyone who has children, anyone who lives next to children, uh, anyone who has you know children in their family, extended family. Please stop saying. Uh, you're not a maths person or you weren't good at maths either, so it doesn't matter, or all of those things that, you you know, you might think is sort of an offhand comment about yourself, but it really impacts on young people and they form this perception that maybe they're just not a maths person mm. and so it doesn't matter uh, to them. But I think we need to really challenge that. Yeah. So there's two parts to that answer. We need more maths teachers. The way to get more maths teachers is to get more students being successful in maths. So it is a bit of a chicken egg situation here. We need to improve the experience for all students for the whole of their schooling in a maths classroom and hope that many more of them go into teaching. Uh, yeah, hope that answers the question. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting listening to, to what you're sharing there because uh, so much of it, I think even as Phil illustrated, is less necessarily about the, the, the inherent value of the knowledge and skill that's partake in maths learning and numeracy learning, but more around how we can help young people step into their own agency and, and self-efficacy and the belief that they are capable. And that's our responsibility as, as educators, whether it's in an English class, a math class, an art class, a history class, whatever the, whatever the content that we're rolling out at any given time, there's more going on that we are responsible for in terms of building these young people, the, the capacity in each of these young people in helping them, sorry, become the authors then, of course, of their own story. So much of what you shared there goes back to what we were originally talking about a while back around influence and us understanding our influence. And so with that influence, I'm hearing you say the importance of vocabulary. What type of language are we going to be using in the care of our young people? If we continue to go down the path of using deficit language, well, then they will subscribe to this notion that they're simply not good enough. But if we started using the language of a growth mindset, a language that's about even better if, where we're encouraging them to step into and lean forward into the spaces, uh, it's quite transformational. For us to do that, though, we have to permission their agency, but we also have to permission the opportunity for failure to occur and be okay with that and let them wrestle in those moments of struggle and find ways through solutions, through that really good content that they've learned, that really good skills they've learned in your context, a maths classroom, a find a way through. So that leads me now to permission. For me, the word permission is the granting oneself the formal consent to simply do something. 
It's the kind of necessary yes towards real movement and a purposeful action and ultimately our own self-actualization. What I'm interested in hearing from you, Haley, is uh, when was there a time in your career where you didn't wait for permission and you simply did something? Oh, that's a funny question. <laughs> By the way, listeners, when I asked that question, Haley's face just uh, lit up and uh, there was a big smirk on her on her face. <laughs> when has there been a time where I haven't asked for permission? Well, you didn't wait for it. Mm. Mm. I didn't wait for permission. I think your, your podcast is called Game Changers. So you're speaking to people who have pushed boundaries and are doing things that are outside of you know, possibly what's been done before or certainly what's been done before in, in their context. And I'm not advocating that people go and break all these rules uh, all the time. But I think if you are doing what you're doing for the students and you know that what you're doing is in the best interests of students and often it's also teachers and often they go hand in hand because if you have happy and uh, successful teachers that has a positive influence on on students but I think that there is an element of, of people who are game changers that you can't just sit around and wait for everybody to give you permission to go and do something that you you believe is the right thing to do mm-hmm. for students and sometimes that gets you in trouble uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately mm-hmm. But if you've done it for the right reasons and you haven't, you know, it's not that you're going against something that somebody has told you to do, but you're just sort of nudging, pushing the bar a little bit higher. Um, I don't know how to answer that, Adriana. I think I've done it my entire career probably. Yeah. But have been really fortunate in the sense that I have had people supporting me to do that. So I, I, think meant- this, I think that's the interesting point here, right? I think you raise something that's really fundamental around permission. What I'm hearing you say is that m- most of your educational career is that you, you have simply kind of pushed the boundary a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further incrementally. It hasn't been revolution. It's been more evolution. Uh, these, these gentle steps into seeing what's possible and, and testing and iterating and testing and iterating around that. That's not maverick. That's just that's just uh, someone who continues to want to be forward thinking in, in their approach, and 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 just test the waters about what works really well, but what could what we could be open to. But the magic I feel in your response then is you were environment you were in environments and had leaders that gave you that space, and I think that's the purpose and that's the power and the transformative power of permission. Right? If we have leaders within our schools that often say yes as opposed to a hard no, uh, you really don't know what you're going to discover unless you try it. And, and there's, there's, some, there's some magic in that and there's some joy in that. Uh, uh, the reality is that many of our colleagues work in environments that perhaps it's about control and compliance and not about permission and opportunity. So that goes me to my final question before I hand it over to, to, to Phil to who might have another question and then and wrap this up. How do you think schools can work to build a better world? I think it honestly comes back to the conversation we were having earlier around 
student voice and agency. There's a big piece there around teacher voice and agency, which you've just sort of uh, tapped into a little bit, Adriano. I don't think they're two separate worlds. I think that if school leaders can have a mindset that they listen to ideas, I interviewed Stan Grant at um, at ASIL after he spoke, and we had a, a really interesting chat about the concept of listening and hearing, and he made the point that they're really different things. So you can ask people to have a voice and then they can they can say whatever they say and give you their suggestions, ideas, thoughts, and then you can say thanks, you know, thanks for your feedback and, and walk on and just do what you want to do anyway. Or you can actually hear what people are saying and then involve them in in next steps. And any school leaders out there listening to me going, oh, no, now, you know, she's saying everyone needs to be involved in everything. I'm absolutely not saying that. And sometimes it's about the feedback loop. So staff bring up an issue, say, you know, X is a problem. These are our ideas. Potentially as the leader, you know, that's impossible and you can't do anything about it, but you go, you need to go back to them and explain why, like work with them to say, well, actually, these are the constraints I'm working within because they might actually have another idea rather than just not hearing it. And we do that with uh, students as well. We need to go like feedback loop back to them. I, I heard what you said. This is part of my doctoral research is looking at uh, student feedback to teachers and and how that process of collecting student feedback can uh, hopefully be improved and the use of student feedback. But, you know, this is part of it. It's that feedback loop back and actual collaboration with all of the members in in the school community so your question was around you know making a better world Mm. and I I think the answer is literally in front of us we just need to uh, move away from tokenistic voice and agency student voice and agency and be a little bit prepared to just loosen those reins a bit which can be really scary and involve people in the process and then if you're really open with them, um, I, I, I do like the saying, if you're not a tree, move. Or if you don't like where you are, mm-hmm. move. You are not a tree. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if if you're really transparent with your school community and they don't like the direction you're going in and they don't want to be part of it, you know, often there's the option for particularly teachers, staff to, to move on. But don't you want to know like, don't you want to be transparent so that then they know exactly where you're at, what, the direction that we're going, and everyone's coming along? Um, and I, I think I think that's my answer to your question, Adriano. Is that it's it's literally in front of us. Listen and work with the teachers and the students in your school. Thank you. Final question from us today, Haley. What commitment do you personally make to your ongoing growth as a continuous learner and unlearner? I think I I don't have a set path I'm not there's no goal that I'm heading towards I'm not sort of trying to be the education minister Um, I'm not necessarily even trying to you know claw my way to be a, a principal I like to go and be where I'm learning and valued so I think if you follow that sort of purpose it's inherent that I'm committing to ongoing learning and unlearning and I certainly don't think I have all the answers I've had one experience in you know 
a pretty unique context. I'm, there's amazing work happening in this space, and I know you're speaking to other people, but there's incredible work happening in this space around the country, and they're doing different things and might disagree with some of the work I'm doing. I'm really keen to hear about that. Um, there's amazing things happening overseas. I've, I've been fortunate to go and visit um, a few different countries and explore student voice and agency there. So I, I think that's my commitment is that I know that I don't have all the answers, not even close. I'm keen to learn from other people and and be doing different work to build my skills and knowledge in this space or in other spaces um, where I'm where I'm valued and can make a difference. Hayley Duro, thank you so much for joining us on Game Changers today. It's been a real treat to listen to you weave in and out of the bigger picture and the fine detail that makes up the sheer poetry of our calling, as Valerie Hannon would put it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been amazing. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.